Welcome to Season 8 of American Political History, Colonial America, The American Slave. If you want a rabbit hole of history to venture down at your next dinner party, ask a simple question. Why were the natives not successfully enslaved in large numbers in colonial America? Follow that up with, why were African slaves so successfully enslaved? If you ask this question to almost any American today, you will hear the echoes of 300 years of self-interested political propaganda. Natives were too strong and free-spirited to be enslaved. Wrong. Africans were naturally subservient and easier to enslave from their long cultural history of practicing slavery. Wrong. If you have been listening this far, then you know why both of these answers are ridiculous. The success and or failure of enslavement has to do with the societal structure currently in place. Is the society only able to impose peripheral slavery, or has the society economically gained enough power so that it can impose centralized slavery? Many natives were sold into slavery and traded to the Caribbean's centralized slave system. Those native slaves would never escape captivity in the Caribbean. It just so happened that many of the native slaves that were used in North American colonies was during a period when colonial society was not economically powerful enough to impose centralized slavery. Native slaves generally faced a society of peripheral slavery. That is to say, during that time of colonial America, slaves still had incentives and ways to integrate into the broader society. In the late 17th century and early 18th century, as the American colonies grew more prosperous and so centralized their slave systems. At the same time, their economies now demanded more slave labor, and these slaves were most easily supplied by the Caribbean's access to African slaves. There should be no doubt in anyone's mind that if the American colonies had developed their structures of centralized slavery, when they were dependent upon native slaves, they would not have hesitated to impose that centralized slave system upon those of native ancestry. And if those centralized slave systems were in place, those of native ancestry would have faced the same permanent slave status which those unfortunate few natives received when they were sent to the Caribbean. Yet today, if you ask those questions which I started with, you will likely hear answers having to do with the ethnic traits and differences attributed to natives and Africans, which we should recognize as the echoings of racist justifications that were used against the American slave of African ancestry for generations. That it was something inherent in their Africanness or humanity a weakness that justified the reason that they were to be the enslaved in American society, and it was also used to justify why the slave owners and masters would all be of European ancestry, because they were somehow inherently superior to or deserving of their title as master. There was never a point or a cabal of individuals that sat down and decided that slavery is what will be done in the American colonies. This 
economic form of centralized slavery with large plantations was first learned by the Portuguese from their African trade partners, who were providing them African slaves that they did not know what to do with. Decades later, the Spanish would set up slave labor plantations and mines throughout Central and South America. The English, Dutch, and French would try to duplicate the Spanish success and wealth by building their own plantations in the Caribbean. The English would succeed with large plantation farming, utilizing slaves and producing sugar. The southern colonial American colonies would try to duplicate the success of the Caribbean for the first couple of generations using indentured servants, but as the colony's wealth increased, they would over a couple of more generations convert their economies at first to periphery slavery and then to centralized large slave plantations. And we have to remember that in the context of the world in the 18th century, the use of slavery and slaves to produce goods was not something unique to colonial America. Everywhere in the world, slaves were used to produce wealth. The only dividing factor was societies rich enough to produce and obtain slaves and societies too poor to do so. The growth and use of slaves in American colonies would begin to diverge, not based on a particular moral quandary about using slaves, but from basic economic factors. The southern plantations, which had climates suitable to grow cash crops like rice, tobacco, and eventually cotton, in those societies, their economies would shift to a paradigm of large plantation agricultural with the use of slaves. The northern colonies simply had no agricultural commodities with which to build their economies in a way that would allow them the wealth to develop large slave-based labor pools. The greatest obstacle of exploring this early history of the American slave is that the broader society which controlled every aspect of their lives did not diligently keep records of them. Colonial American records simply did not pay particular attention to the race or slave status of the people coming here. Many records would list butlers or manservants, but those records could as easily be alluding to an indentured servant as it was a fully enslaved person. And those early slaves could have easily been from Africa or Eastern Europe. And people did have loyal household servants, which were paid, who would have also been referred to as butlers or manservants. By the very nature of the early peripheral slave system in colonial America, it was decentralized and poorly recorded. This leaves me with a void in which I cannot tell my fellow American brothers and sisters when their families were first forcibly brought to American colonies. It is only once the slave system becomes centralized that the record-keeping becomes much clearer. We have to remember that it was not until the American Revolution that the first quality census of slaves happened in America. This was because in the new American Republic, distribution of legislative house seats and resources would be made up based on the population of each state. So suddenly there was a powerful incentive to diligently count and record every single slave on every single plantation. So here is the best information I can provide from the mists of history. The first American slave who arrived in what we think of as the United States today were Spanish slaves who arrived in Florida in the late 16th century. And from the limited surviving records, it sounds like they may have escaped into the wilderness of Florida, fate unknown.
From the tattered records of the early 17th century, it's clear that any Portuguese or Dutch ship participating in the triangle trade would have sold slaves on the regular. From the records of ship manifests, we know that there was a Dutch vessel that arrived in Jamestown in 1619, which had slaves on its manifest. And these trade ships were never met with any records of particular reaction or special moments or comments about the first slaves brought to America. In fact, knowing the depth of European slavery, nothing of it would have been special. What we do know through the records is that the first African slaves to live and die in colonial America labored away in New Amsterdam. The Dutch, being in the early 17th century, the dominant slave merchants, kept better records and actually left headstones for those first slaves. We can also use other things to extrapolate information. In 1635, colonies would start to give headright values to owners of Negro slaves, assuming that slave owners would not turn down free land associated with the slaves they were already bringing to the colonies. It is believed that from 1635 through 1650, about 50 Negro slaves forcibly arrived annually in the American colonies. This rate would begin to increase in 1660 to 80 annually, and further increasing in the 1680s to 200 annually. But by the dawn of the 18th century, no colony gave out headrights anymore. African slaves were a prized, expensive, and valuable asset. African slaves were not spread out equally amongst society, but an asset only obtainable by the wealthiest families in colonial America. For instance, when the Lee family claimed 80 headrights for their slaves in a single year, that was accounting for almost all headright claims for African slaves that year. Almost all people immigrating to America would not come with slaves, nor would they own slaves during any point of their lifetimes. But African slaves being a thing only for the very wealthiest of colonial American society did not mean that the structures of laws would not be changed to centralize the slave system within that society. In the 1650s, Virginia and Maryland began passing legislation to centralize slavery within those colonies. Virginia passed a law that any free man must immigrate immediately to another colony when he was freed. A free man was specifically a black free male. And by black, we mean any shade, remotely, that was not straight white. By doing this, they would centralize their power of enslavement by codifying into law that any black male in the colony at all was inherently an enslaved person and property of someone. This legislation was passed with a single page, with no debate, a ruthlessly effective way to centralize slavery of Africans within those colonies. The other nine pages of the legislation were centered around miscegenation, that is the interbreeding between a white woman and a black man. At the time, slavery was inherited by your father and affected anyone in the household, including his wife and children. This created a perverse incentive to get your white female indentured servant to somehow decide to marry your African slave. Then the female indentured servant would become your slave. You also could arrange for the indentured servant to become pregnant by your slave, willingly or forcibly. Colonial American society put enormous pressure on any woman to marry whoever she became pregnant with, socially forcing her to marry your African slave so she would become your slave. This was an enormous scandal in colonial America, 
plantation owners were supposed to be manorial lords, and this sort of behavior caused great shock and disgust within the population. But this scandal would result in an outcome of tightening the centralized slave authority. Without direct historical evidence, my interpretation is, just like in American politics today, never let a serious crisis go to waste. There was a strong economic incentive to change the rules of slavery to make them perpetually inherited. Typically, if you inherited your father's slavery status, you would be enslaved as a child, but once you reached the age of maturity and were considered your own adult, you would be free. Slavery lasted a single generation. But if the laws were changed so that you inherited them from your mother by traditional maternal inheritance traditions of the time, that inheritance would be a permanent status. So this crisis and the legislation from it tangentially had to do with the problem of inherited slave status, which created unwanted moral incentives in society. So the inheritance of slave status was moved from father to mother, which did cure the incentives of the scandal, but it also dramatically increased the wealth and power of slave owners. This simple legal change would mean that a slave owner would possess the reproductive capabilities of their slaves, specifically the women, and any children that they would bear at any point in their lives would become property of the slave owner perpetually. This legal change dramatically increased the long-term value of owning slaves. Not only could you have your slaves produce goods on your plantation, but you could exploit your female slaves to produce more slaves for you, which you could either use to produce things or sell for further profits. But there were a couple of more factors that explained the rapid growth of slaves in the colonial America. With the end of the Dutch-Anglo Wars, the Royal African Company had established itself in a powerful position to dominate the African slave trade. This reduced the price of purchasing slaves in colonial America in two ways. Because of how the English protectionist laws were structured, it was always cheaper to buy directly from English merchants instead of Dutch merchants. And during those first few decades of the 18th century, the Royal African Company was awash in excess supply of African slaves, which collapsed the price of purchasing African slaves for a few decades. All these factors combined for a timing that allowed the use of African slaves in America to become the paradigm and boom into the 18th century. With the expansion of the Royal African Company came typical record-keeping of a corporation. We can extrapolate the average amount of slaves on a slave ship to the American colonies by using the average amount of slaves claimed on insurance payoffs when Royal African Company ships were lost at sea. Grim, but useful. Using these estimated numbers of slave ships shipping to colonial America, we can say that between 1635 and 1649, around 250 African slaves were exported to colonial America. Between 1650 and 1674, that number increased to 1,200. Between 1675 and 1700, it jumped to 2,600 slaves. By 1700, based on an attempted census at the time, there was around 6,000 African slaves living in colonial America. Colonial slave masters now owned 6,000 African slaves and all of their progeny to come. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.